Hello and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to begin a new study. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. Now, I know everybody comes to the book of Revelation with all sorts of ideas and questions, and we may address some of those as we go through this study, but let me assure you, my desire here is to look at what God's Word says. And in doing so, I may bring in some additional background on differing views on what a passage may say, but our focus will remain on what the passage actually says, not on all the different ideas people have about the passage. I am in large part kind of a literalist, or no, yeah, I'm rather literal when it comes to understanding God's word. I'm not a literalist. You know, when Jesus says, I am the gate. He's not saying he's a gate. Okay. It's a metaphor, but we understand what he means. He means the same thing when he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father, but by me, you know, there's an exclusivity to it. And so we, we begin to understand that as we read scripture, that it, sometimes it does use picturesque language and, um, metaphors. So we want to kind of pay attention to that. When we get into the book of Revelation, wow, things really change because we're dealing with a specific genre of literature called apocalyptic literature or hidden literature. And there are certain rules for first century apocalyptic literature that will influence what we read and how we begin to understand it. And I'll try to walk you through some of that. So there's there's a whole lot of baggage when it comes to the book of Revelation, but I look forward to this study together with you, and I hope it inspires greater faith and an encouragement to follow God with your lives. So thank you for joining us today on this installment and the following installments of Grasping Scripture as we delve into the book of Revelation. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to your creation, that you have made yourself known in Christ and through your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us the gift of salvation, that you have won the victory over death, and that you speak these words of encouragement to us, calling us to obedience, but also reminding us of the hope and the promise that lies ahead that in you there is victory, in you there is life. So now, Father, as we begin studying this sometimes challenging book from our perspective and from our, our limited understanding of things, Father, give us wisdom and insight. Give us the ability to hear the voice of your Spirit speaking to us, that we may understand and we may apply your word to our lives and our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, here we go. The book of Revelation, just a little background. This is written by John. Yeah, that John, the gospel author, the author of the epistles. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved that John. He is, well, he holds a distinction of pretty much being the only disciple that wasn't martyred. And um, 
he spent a good chunk of his life at this point on the Isle of Patmos, which was a, a Roman island that was part of what guarded and, and protected the shipping port of Miletus. Um, there was a Roman fortress there where they would imprison people and where they would keep exiles. He was exiled for his preaching of the gospel. He had led the church at Ephesus, and by this point in history, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 AD, uh, so it's pretty late in the first century, at this point, um, well, at this point, the Roman government had begun to understand with the help of the Jewish leadership that although Judaism was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire, they were coming to understand that Christianity was something different than Judaism. It wasn't just a sect of Judaism. It was a different belief. And that being the case, by this point, Christians no longer worshipped in the synagogue. They no longer worshipped on Saturdays. They had shifted it to Sunday to celebrate the Lord's Day, the, the Day of Resurrection. And, and they met in different places, mostly homes. But the Romans began to look at that and went, wait, this is an unauthorized religion. There were those that were on the authorized list and those that were not. And they tried to stamp out the ones they considered unauthorized religions. Well, Christianity fell into that. So you wind up with Christians being persecuted. You wind up with Christian leaders either being executed or exiled. In this case, with John, it was exile. Well, it's in that context, in the context of a persecuted church, in the context of the Roman government saying that Caesar is Lord and all Roman peoples have to acknowledge that and proclaim that, and Christians in good conscience and seeking to follow God, saying, I can't proclaim Caesar is Lord because Christ is Lord. Um, they were being imprisoned. They were being beaten. They were being executed. I just, it was a rough situation for the church. In that context, God gives John this vision, and John writes it down. And he does write it in an apocalyptic style. Whether it was given to him in an apocalyptic style or not, I don't know. But God inspired him to record it in an apocalyptic style where things aren't as obvious as they might be otherwise. Part of the reason for this is those who knew Christ and were in the know, were in the first century church, would have read this and they would have known what John was talking about. Add 2,000 years and another hemisphere to that, and we tend to read this, you know, as I've shared with you before, I'm sitting here in Texas reading this in uh, 2000 and I think it's 2021, although it seems like it's 2020 all over again. Um, here I'm reading this, and the context is different. And I'm not steeped in first century life and culture and apocalyptic literature. So I have to do more work, and by the way, so do you, in understanding it. And some of it, we just don't have the context to really grasp, so we kind of guess at. Now, not the important stuff. The doctrines don't change. The truth of Scripture is still there. Christ is still proclaimed. But some of the details, we can we can kind of say, you know, I, I've got an idea on that, but I'm just not sure. And that's okay. Because a re quick reminder, 
Remember, there's the essentials of the Christian faith. That stuff you have to believe, that you have got to be in line with, the stuff that makes you right with Christ, that God came in the flesh, dwelt among us, that he died a sinless sacrifice for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again and now sits at the right hand of the Father. You kind of got to be on board with those things if you are going to be a Christian, a believer, follower of Christ. Those are essentials. Then there's the secondary stuff. And it's important, but it's not salvation level stuff. It's you need to grow into it. And then there's the tertiary stuff, the stuff on the fringes. And you can hold a different view and we can disagree about what exactly that means. And it doesn't really matter. Oh, we may draw our distinctions and think it matters, but the truth is it isn't salvation stuff. A lot of the viewpoints that people get fired up about on the book of Revelation are that tertiary stuff, that third level stuff. Well, my view of the end times is this. Well, great. That's your view. Here's my view. Can we each come up with scriptures to back it up? Yeah, probably. But is any of it a salvation issue? And the answer is no. Phrase I picked up in seminary that you have to remember when you're studying end times things. It will all end in him and who it began. Now, I don't know who that's a quote from, but I remember the quote and it's right. It started with Christ and guess where it's going to end? In Christ. Place your faith in him, not in theories about how it's all going to go down, not in timetables or any of that. Place your faith in Christ. And by the way, that's kind of the overarching message of the book of Revelation to encourage believers that if they've placed their faith in Christ, then their future is secure in the one who is victorious. Remember that theme as we read through the book of Revelation and study the various passages. So having said all that, let's get ready to take a look at the passages. We're going to cover chapter one today. So in chapter one of verse one, we have uh, basically a prologue, a lead into it that explains what it is. And then we have some, some greeting standard format. This was written as a first century letter, much like the letters of Paul that we have studied. He says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that will soon take place. Now, there's a whole lot there. It's from Christ. Yes, it's inspired. It's a vision given to John by Christ. It is being revealed to him. And, um, well, must soon take place. We may go, oh, soon, what's that mean? It means it's going to happen in John's lifetime. It means it's going to happen in 100 years. It means it's going to... We don't know what soon means, okay? Soon, it's like saying we're in the last days. We know we're in the last days. We know there are 2,000 years of them less than there were, but we don't know how many there are. So soon is a relatively speaking sort of thing, and we're not sure what that timetable looks like, but we know it's coming. What we can say today for certain is it's sooner than it was. So be mindful of that. 
This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that would soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is the report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God bless the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Now, he's given us an interesting intro there, hasn't he? There is a warning and an encouragement. There is a promise of blessing there. He blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, not just about hearing God's word, but about doing God's word. That's a theme we've heard before in numerous places, and it still holds true here. Remember, this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistle letters from John. Same guy. Then we shift gears a little bit and get into the introduction of the letter, not just a prologue about what it's all about. So as we pick up in verse 4, it says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, we're going to stop right there. I know we haven't even finished verse 4, but we've got to back up and go, wait a minute. If you check a map of that day and age, and you look at church history, you will figure out real quick, there's more than seven churches in Asia at that point. And this is the Roman province of Asia, not what we in modern life consider Asia. Those are different things. So you might have to do a little background study on first century Roman world to get a handle on that. But suffice it to say, Asia, a Roman province, seven churches, that is a representative sample but seven is one of those numbers we're going to see over and over again in this book. And in apocalyptic literature and in first century Jewish life, seven was a number that represented wholeness or completeness. So when he starts talking about, you'll see seven, you'll see 12, you'll see 144, you know, these are kind of significant numbers and they, and even a thousand usually speaks to the idea of completeness or wholeness or fullness. And so here, the seven churches is all the churches, okay? Now, in chapter two, we get to letters to seven of the churches. But here again, even though those are letters to specific churches, they also represent God's message to all the churches. So I I know it sounds like a little bit of mental gymnastics to get there, but that's what's going on here. So the letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Now that is a phrase we are going to see over and over again through the book of Revelation. I want you to pay attention to it because it starts to modify a little bit. And it changes a little bit along the way. And they're important changes. I'm going to point them all out now, but I will point them out as we come to that passage again, over and over. The one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Now, that's the greeting. This letter is from John 
to the seven churches of the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from, who's it from? The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is still to come. And the sevenfold spirit before his throne. Okay, the one who is, was, and is still to come is on his throne. Hmm, God the Father. The sevenfold spirit. Again, seven, the complete. Who is this sevenfold spirit that is before the throne? It's part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And here we go, wait, how do you get that? Because the next character that's listed is the third member of the Trinity, Christ. So the one who was is still to come. And the sevenfold spirit before his throne in verse five and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. So there he has proclaimed who Christ is from three different aspects. He is the faithful witness of God to all these things. He is the first to rise from the dead and he is king of of all the rulers or ruler of all the kings of the world. Remember the world they're in. Remember what the believers are going through, that persecution from Rome because they refuse to acknowledge Caesar as king, as Lord in their lives, but they acknowledge Christ as Lord. Not so much acknowledge Caesar as king, but it was Caesar worship. Um, that Caesar was God in their lives is what they were expected by Rome to acknowledge. They wouldn't do that. They clung to Christ and they paid the price for it. And here's this encouragement. The one who is ruler of all the kings of this world is Jesus. It goes on in the rest of five. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. That passage there, that is, that's a doxology. That's a, a hymn of praise to God declaring who he is and declaring the glory of Christ. So five and six, that's just a, a beautiful presentation of who Christ is and our relationship to him. Going on in seven, he says, look, here." excuse me, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. Again, another kind of hymn doxology there. He's declaring Christ is going to come. He's going to return and it, the truth is going to be evident to everyone, even those that didn't acknowledge it and that pierced him. You say, well, what about all that? Hey, clouds of heaven. Yes, he's going to come in the clouds just as he ascended into the clouds. But I want to give you a heads up here that there are those certain symbols that you're going to see over and over again and as to what they mean. When you see a reference to the clouds of heaven or you see a reference to something being shrouded in clouds or there being clouds, understand that has a long history not just in apocalyptic literature, but in biblical literature. It goes all the way back to the Exodus account, the Shekinah glory of God, 
that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that wrote that showed the presence of God with the nation of Israel in the wilderness. When Isaiah is in the temple and he falls to his knees because the temple shakes and the, the, the cloud fills the temple, and that cloud represents the glory of God. Being in the presence of God, the, the physical manifestation of his glory being evident is described over and over and over again in Scripture as a cloud. So there's kind of a double meaning here. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven. He comes with the glory of God being manifest around him, is what he's saying there. And everyone will see him, even those that pierced him. So the truth is going to be evident to all, even those that didn't acknowledge him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes. Amen. And then in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, Alpha and Omega, first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, saying, you know, from the beginning of time to the end of time, from, from existence to existence, I am. Hmm, I am. He starts it with I am. Old Testament there again. Genesis, Moses, standing at the burning bush. Who do I say sent me? Say that I am. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the water. I am. It is a, a statement, again, going back to Exodus. And we're going to see lots of things in the book of Revelation that go back and reflect Exodus. Um, but here, this is bold, not just bold, a clear declaration that this is God. And it's Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. So we have the promise that God has been, that He is, and that He will be, and He is returning. Now we get to verse 9. And with nine, there's a little bit more going on. John begins to tell him about his situation, the, the historical context of where he's writing. So we've had this introduction of what the book is. We've had this opening of the letter with who it's from and this declaration about God and the Trinity and, and that it's to the, the churches of Asia, the seven churches representing all the churches. And then we get to nine and he says, I, John am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. So I am with you in all of this. I am with you in God's kingdom. I'm with you in the suffering for his kingdom. I am with you in that patient endurance. Why is it patient endurance? Because it's what Jesus has called us to. He says, I was exiled on the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day. We would understand that as Sunday is the day it was. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. So he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's worshiping God on the Lord's day. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Hmm. Trumpet blast. Yeah. The, that pronouncement of the presence of God. But the 
trumpet blast and voice of the archangel, um, Thessalonians, we see it elsewhere in scripture. So it's, it's getting his attention, declaring God. It said, write in the book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. Think menorah. I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite name for himself. He's also pulling imagery from the book of Daniel, which is where Jesus was pulling the Son of Man reference. Standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. What a description. What is he describing here? He's describing Christ. Why is he describing him like that? Well, the, the, the long robes and the gold sash, those are priestly garments. The, the head and hair being white like wool, that is a sign of, of wisdom and maturity. Sign that, that there's intelligence and maturity and wisdom that can be trusted um, and also purity. His eyes were like flames of fire, that, that, that perceptiveness that cuts through all of the, the noise and sees clearly. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. There's a weightiness to it and a, and a solidity. There's a, a trustworthiness in the stability of it. So all these are, are images being presented. And his voice thundering like mighty ocean waves. All of that is building the idea that this is one of power and wisdom and knowledge, but also one of security and faithfulness that is worthy of our trust and our hopes. And that is the description John gives us of this one that appears to him standing among the lampstands. But there's more than a description. In verse 16, we encounter this. He says, he held seven, hmm, remember that number, seven, what's it mean? Completeness, wholeness. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in its brilliance. Wow, it's pretty fanciful imagery. Again, it's apocalyptic imagery. It is intended to evoke certain thoughts and ideas and remembrances, particularly among the Christians. Two-edged sword coming from his mouth. What could that be a reference to? The word of God is like a two-edged sword. Yeah. 
It is the truth of God's word coming forth. Um, stars in his right hand. Generally, that's accepted to understand those stars represented the churches, the, the complete churches in his right hand. The right hand was a sign of, of acceptance, of taking into possession, that he holds the churches in his hand, that he holds not just the churches as organizations, but the people that make up the church in his hand. His face was his face was like the sun in its brilliance. That that shining. We see those references in scripture to, to shining like lightning, that that brilliance that you just can't stand to look at. That's that's the holiness of God, the purity of God uh, being shown in his face. Remember Moses coming down off the mountain from meeting with God, his face glowed. You know, just the, the the afterglow of being in the presence of God, his face literally glowed and it made people uncomfortable and he wore a veil until it faded. With Jesus, it doesn't fade and it's not just a glow, it's blinding brilliance. So it speaks of his glory, his holiness in that. So there's a lot of imagery just packed into those few verses, but it all points the same place. Christ. John is almost singing the praises of Christ and saying, this is who appeared to me. When I heard that voice, I turned around. This is what I was hit with. Verse 17, he shares with us what his reaction to that was. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Well, what's going on there? Again, same that we see in the Old Testament, same that we see at places in the New Testament. Being encountered with the presence of God knocks you off your feet. It humbles you. It causes terror. Fear not. Yeah. An encounter with the holiness of God leads us in our humanity and our broken sinfulness to one conclusion. We're toast. Or as Isaiah said it, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. When we are confronted with the holiness of God, we are also confronted with the reality of our own unholiness. And we know we don't belong there. So John, when he saw him, fell at his feet as if he were dead. But, you see, we know we don't belong in the presence of that holiness that is God. But here's what God does for us. We see it reflected just here in verse 17. But he laid his right hand. Remember right hand, a symbol of acceptance and welcoming. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Don't be afraid. He found that acceptance in Christ. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. So any question we're talking about Christ here, I died, but look 
I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So in one hand, he has the stars, the churches, the believers that he has accepted, that he holds in his hand. In the other, he holds the keys to the thing that scares us, to the thing that humanity has lived in fear of, death and the grave. He says, I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So I've got the church and I've beaten death. Don't be afraid. What a word of encouragement for believers. Now for non-believers, that should be kind of scary. And there's a whole lot in Revelation that should be terrifying to those that do not know Christ. But to those that know Christ, this isn't scary stuff. It's affirming stuff. It's assurance in our salvation of where our trust lies and what God has done for us and that we can place our hope firmly in Christ. And we see that even just in these first few verses as we get into the book. But we're not done with chapter one yet. Picking up in 19, Christ in speaking to John says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. So it's, it's prophetic. It is not only what is, but it's what is coming, seeing it from God's perspective. This, verse 20, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or literal translation there, the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, seven complete. Um, But he's already addressed that the representation here is of the seven churches of Asia of Asia, the Roman province. So I need to go back and unpack that part of 20 where he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. There are a couple of interpretations there. One is that it literally means angels. It means guardian angels overseeing or watching over those seven churches in Asia Minor. Is that a valid interpretation of the passage? Yes, it is. You can go with that. It's okay. Um, God's angels are at work. There is a spiritual battle going on. He does send out his angels to guard and to protect and to fight some of those battles on our behalf. But I don't think that's what he is saying here. Notice I said, I don't think. This is my opinion. I side with one of the other interpretations. The other main interpretation of this is, as I've already pointed out, the the word that we transliterate as angel comes from the Greek word angelos, and it means messenger. And if we were to use it just in a Greek sentence, we would translate it as the word messenger. So there's some interpretive 
translating going on here to translate that into English as angels instead of messengers. Had it been translated messengers, then it would read the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. Kind of changes the viewpoint, doesn't it? And, and I'll tell you, that's the viewpoint I side with, that this is to the messengers of the seven churches, to the elders or the pastors of the seven churches, uh, to the to the spiritual leadership of the seven churches is what's going on there. And that's representative, not definitive. But those are the two viewpoints primarily on who these messengers or angels are, the seven churches, that the seven stars are. It's representative. Of, and a third viewpoint, and it's it's legitimate too, is that those seven stars representing the angels, the messengers of the seven churches could, by extension, represent the entirety of those churches. And I've kind of mentioned that earlier in the description of it. So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. They are that light on a hill, think Matthew, because this is Jesus who's talking here. Um, those lampstands burning before God, set on fire by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. So who are they? Well, they're the churches. Are we talking just about the churches of Asia Minor? Well, yes and, and no. I mean, this is a message to all of the church, all the redeemed throughout all ages. But it's also a church to the church or a letter to the churches in Asia as well. So um, much like much of our prophetic literature in the Old Testament is to the situation at hand, but also speaks to a larger reality. We see that here in the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic. It is also prophetic. So we have to balance that. And it's it's a juggling act. Now, as I've just explained all that, understand that's how we're going to go through this book, the Revelation of John. We're going to be taking it, reading it, and going, you know, some people understand it to mean this, and some mean this. And I will weigh in on what my viewpoint is. And I'll tell you, that's my viewpoint at this point in time. Hasn't always been that, may not always be that. Again, these aren't primary issues of faith. These are tertiary. They're, they're out there on the fringe. Our interpretations can be different. And we are still saved. The focus needs to always remain on Christ not on the situation. And so John has laid all this out there as the groundwork. We know who's giving the vision. It's Christ. And then we are going to get in the next chapter into these letters to the churches. And it spills over a couple chapters. So it'll be a couple installments of grasping scripture before we get through the letters to the churches. And we'll talk about the interpretation of those letters. We'll also talk about the historical context of what is happening in those physical places at that time. And that will help us understand what is being said as well. So I appreciate you joining us for this study as we have just scratched the surface on this book, but it is not a book to instill fear. In fact, just the opposite. The intent of it is to build us up in our faith and encourage us as we face persecution, as we face whatever comes in the days ahead, 
trusting in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for Christ, that we may know you in Christ. And Father, that we may receive the gift of your Spirit living in us, the the Spirit of Christ in our lives. And Lord, as we study this book, I pray that you would use it to draw us closer together in our faith with one another, but also in obedience to you, that we would be reminded to place our hope and our trust in you and to rely securely in that, that you are the one that is faithful. Lord, give us an openness and a grace to those who know you, but may hold a different view than we do about some of these matters that we would be gracious and loving and understand that our focus is you. Lord, we thank you for your word, for this revelation that you gave to John so long ago and yet still holds truth for us today and speaks to us. Lord, give us hearts to hear your word, your voice your spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.